Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello everyone and welcome back to The Grid. I'm Jennifer Shahadi and today I have Mei Sue. She is a high stakes cash game player based in New York City. You might have also seen her quite deep in plenty of WSOP events, including a third place finish at the 2014 WSOP Ladies. But normally she is hitting up the cash games and she'll give us an insider's look into that scene in her hand history today. She's also the founder of Poker for Good at pokerforgood.org which runs charity poker tournaments to benefit nonprofits. And May has recently started a campaign to support StopAAPIHate.org. And this ongoing campaign has already raised over 17K for the cause of Stop Asian Hate. I'm in there personally for 10% of my first winning PA scoop session. So hopefully we'll be adding a little bit to the total. But first, let's talk about a pretty important hand in the grid, Jax, the hand that so many of us love to love. I mean, come on, it's a pretty good poker hand, right? So May, tell us a little bit about when and where your hand that you're bringing us today came from. Yes, thanks for the intro, Jen, and thanks for having me here today. This hand happened in a home game. We've all just been cheated by a team of five people in the previous game. So we started a small little group with trusted friends. And our group is a very mixed personality, going from filmmakers to lawyers to doctors to real estate moguls and Wall Street financiers. And we've all known each other for many years. It's a great cast of characters. We trash talk a bunch and lots of fun. So this hand is actually the last hand of the night and also the last hand I play before the pandemic shut down. We play a 510 no limit sometimes with 25 straddle. And I had started the game with 200 big blinds and had built it up to around 750 big blinds. In general, the game gets a little wilder towards the end of the night and everyone is just having fun and goofing around. So in our home game, one of our players is nicknamed General Bang Bang. And it's for a good reason. (laughs) He's a tricky player. He puts a lot of pressure on his opponents and he's just incredibly smart guy. He chases a lot of draws. He's also not afraid to bluff. And he would put you in these really, really tough positions where he makes these big polarizing bets. And a lot of players would just fold to him. So we all just think either he has it or just couldn't even call. So some players with selective memories would tell you he bangs every turn and every river and he scoops the pots all the time. So here we go with the hand. This is the last hand. It's 510 and is straddled. Pre-flopped, player one under the gun straddles 25. General bang bang, under the gun plus one with 600 big blinds, opens to 150. I'm in the middle position with 750 big blinds. I call with jacks. Player two in late position, call. Player one under the gun, call. And the flop comes 872 rainbow. Player one check, general bang bang bets 500. I called, player two fold, player one fold. And then the turn comes a four of hearts, which brings a backdoor heart draw. General Bang Bang bets 1300. I called, and the river comes nine of spades. General Bang Bang shuffles all in so quickly for 4100. So that's when I had this like little internal dialogue. And I start thinking, what the hell is General doing? Is he bluffing? Is he doing his usual pushing people around? Or is he making a polarizing bet with a set or straight? And this internal dialogue just goes through my head. 
And I just tell myself, I just hate jacks. I just absolutely hate jacks. I know every one of us hates jacks and we never know what to do with jacks in certain positions. So I started analyzing the hand and the actions, specifically the timings of his turn bet and his river bet. And I decided to call. I table jacks immediately. General Bang Bang goes to mug his hand and immediately left. Essentially, my call came down to my understanding of his bet sizing and his timing tells. And this is the difference with live games and online games. You just have to pay a lot of attention in live games on your opponent's micro expressions, their body language, and their timing tells. And sometimes that's more important than math. You could do all the math you want, but if you're not paying attention to those body language and micro expressions, you would not be a successful winning player in live game. So General Bang Bang, on his turn bet, he bets really quickly without really thinking about the texture of the flop or the turn. And then on the river bet, he bets even quicker. And again, without really thinking about the texture of the river card. And when he bets the river, he shoves in so quickly that you can almost visualize his frustration, the steam coming out of his head. And you can almost visualize him with his hand up in the air screaming and just telling me to fold. So that's where I basically made my decision on in calling the hand. That's really interesting that you mentioned about the turn because the turn, so it's eight, seven, deuce, rainbow on the flop. And then on the turn being a, a four of hearts, bringing the one back to a flush draw, he bets 1300, right? And that understandable because a four doesn't really change that much except five, six getting there. But then the nine is such an interesting card, right? Like the jack 10 got there, the 10, nine made a pair, a set of nines that could be in your range now. It seems like there's kind of so much going on with that card. And the fact that he still just jams all in without thinking is, is very telling, huh? Yes, exactly. And those things definitely factor into my head. And if he had Jack-10, I had two blockers. So it's pretty difficult for him to have Jack-10 there. But it's not something that's impossible for him to have that. But it's just the way he bets. And he has this pattern where he tends to bet really quickly when he doesn't have much. And when he does have something, he would at least kind of pause a few seconds before he bets. So timing tails is just incredibly important in live games. And I can't stress that enough to any player that plays live poker games. And yeah, this is a really typical one, right? Like, because when you bluff, you have on the first level, you have a little bit less to think about, you know, in terms of like precision of bet sizing. And sometimes you're nervous and you don't want to give off any tells. So like level one is to go faster when you're when you're bluffing. Have you observed in this game a lot of people trying to reverse tell you and, you know, do this with like a nutted hand? For sure. Sometimes it happens. And you kind of have to factor that in as well. In this case, you could kind of tell a little bit easier because he's been losing earlier in the night. So there was a level of frustration. Some of his hands didn't quite work out. So there was a level of frustration that kind of factored into his last and final hand of the night. And generally, people make these kind of moves at the end of the night. And you see players like already stack up their chips and it's already in the rack and they decide to play their last hand and they are maybe missing a few hundred to complete their racks of an even number win session of, let's say, 5,000. And then you see players trying to make this type of move to just kind of capture the last win of the night. Most of the time, it doesn't really work out very well. <laughs> In this case, kind of factored that type of emotion into his play as well. And of course, the timing itself. And that's a nice double up. And, you know, who would have known that that would be the last hand that you would play live for, for so long? You must miss this cast of characters, like seeing them in person, huh? I do. I just, poker has been a great social element for me, especially when I don't play professionally and when I'm not playing all the time. You know, to not have this game, it's just, it, I can really say, like, these are my friends and I really miss them. And I really miss the camaraderie of it. I miss the trash talk. Just miss just these type of actions as well in general. So when you won this hand, um, General Bang Bang's reaction, um, he was immediately just appreciative of your good play or he was a little upset of words? Um, he didn't really show much. He was kind of frustrated. He kind of got up and you know, did his thing and then left fairly quickly because that was the last hand. So he left fairly quickly. 
He didn't really say much. He kind of knocked on the table. He was very gracious about it, but he didn't really say much. The very next time that I saw him, though, was online. And, you know, he told me he is still having nightmares of the hand, but great call and great hand. And then he went on chit-chatting with me like nothing ever happens. This is something that pretty much sums up our group. Like everyone is uber competitive, lots of testosterone. Everyone's pushing everyone around. But yet at the end of the day, everyone is super graceful and they're just complete gentlemen and class acts. And with uh, General Bang Bang, like, do you guys use his full name or do you nickname him Bang Bang or General? Um, we go both ways. I think sometimes we do, we, uh, <laughs> we call him the General. Sometimes we call him Bang Bang. Sometimes you call him General Bang Bang because he just, he's a character. Great guy as well. Is he more on the poker professional side or more in the successful person who loves poker? He's a successful person who loves poker, but he's also getting incredibly good at poker. He also is very charitable. He shows up at most of my charity games that I um, put together. You definitely want General Bang Bang in your charity event. You know, he's... <laughs> You know, you know, he's rebuying. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's amazing. Yes. That is one thing I really like about charity events that you can just kind of like get in there and, and go nuts every hand. And it's it, it can be really fun, um, you know, because you know that you can either win the hand or you can rebuy and then you're donating money to charity. So it's like win-win. Exactly. Yes. I'm actually planning a, uh, a charity poker tournament in a few months. So I hope that you guys will, will come as well. And I'll let you know the details of it uh, as it firms up. Oh, that's awesome. As people are getting vaccinated, it's going to be really fun to start playing some live poker again, especially the more intimate events like charity events or home games. Um, that's a very exciting time for those of us lucky enough to live in places where regular people are getting vaccinated. It's fun to hear about this hound now that we know we're not too far off from being able to play at least in some context. I did want to ask you one more thing, though, because... You talk about this hand and this great cast of characters, and it sounded like you've also been kind of like bonding together because of this unfortunate incident where you got cheated. And I think that negative incidents like that in life can kind of show you who you can trust and who you can't. So it almost brings you closer to the people that are in your circle. And it sounded like that kind of happened here as well, huh? Yes, for sure. I mean, we kind of selectively picked out who we want to invite into our home game and who we want to socialize more. You know, since we got cheated, we've all text each other. <laughs> kind of a little mini support group. I think at some point we even started a chat line, you know, for uh, post-cheating traumatic stress disorders. <laughs> and, um, you know, we've all kind of talked about how we were just so dumb for not figuring this out sooner and we're kind of letting this go, go on for so long. What was the nature of this cheat? Wow, it's actually very, very organized. There is a team of five players and they've been bouncing around infiltrating different home games in the East Coast. Somehow they got introduced to our game and became one of our regulars. So then they started showing up early for the game and one of them would distract a dealer or the host. And then the other one would swap out the deck. It's actually like a Mart deck with wrappers still on. And they would wear these special glasses and contact lenses. And maybe even use cell phones to kind of detect the markings on the back of the card. And when the next card is going to be based on what the cards are in the deck. And these are manufactured cards with numbers and stuff printed on the back for the purpose of cheating. And I don't know if, if you guys are aware, but there was a, a video from DEF CON exposing this technology a few years ago. So if you just Google um, YouTube for DEF CON poker cheating technology, you'll probably find this video. It's like a two-hour long video, basically, that talks about how you can use your cell phones and these special cards to cheat in, in home games or even in casino environments if, if the casino is not watching out for it. Well, I'm glad that people know about it because I imagine that makes it a lot easier to detect if you're aware. I mean, of course, it's not good if somebody like looks it up to try to use it themselves, but hopefully it'll be more the other side where people now can kind of like watch out for, you know, the types of things that people would be doing who are cheating in this way. Like, can you give us an example of like what you wish you had noticed? 
So what I wished that I had noticed a little bit more is I was super confused that some of the players were consistently winning and they were making terrible calls pre-flop with huge range of hands. And they were making these squeeze plays in different positions that just seems a little fishy, but then it could, you know, it could work. Uh, It seems plausible to play that way, but just seems a little fishy. Just the fact that they were winning consistently by about 700 to maybe 1,500 big blinds every time we play for a couple months, that's something that kind of raised my eyebrows and I couldn't comprehend how variance hasn't caught up to them. But then I didn't really, you know, look into it too much. Uh, Another thing that I wish that I had to pay more attention to is to pay attention to the players while they're scanning the cards when the cards are being dealt out. So you can see the cheaters with their special lenses. They're scanning the cards as the dealer is dealing each cards out because they can see what cards are being dealt to who before the next card kind of overlays on the first card that was dealt. So basically, these guys can see our cards for the entire game. And how I found out was just this intuition that it's not really sitting so well with me. And how I actually found out was I was playing another card game with one of the cheats. And it's a card game called The Big Deuce, also called Chinese Poker. And we would play this game after the poker game. And the dealer would leave and it would just be me and him and sometimes another cheat in the game. And basically we would dealt for for ourselves. We would deal four piles of 13 cards each. And in this game, two is the most powerful card of the deck. So having a deuce of spades, it's almost like having pocket aces in poker. And I would notice this cheat would occasionally deal the cards out of chronological orders. So instead of, let's say, a card coming to me per chronological orders, he would deal the cards to himself and then deal the subsequent card to me and then kind of go through the whole cycle. And he would consistently do that. And at first, I just like, how bad can you be? Like, just deal in orders. Like, it's not that difficult. And I would make fun of him all the time about it. Then I started getting a weird feeling about it because it happens so often. So the next time he dealt out of order, I pull that particular card back to the correct pile, which was supposed to come to me. And I kept my finger there. So after he finished dealing, I pick up the pile and I saw that card. And that was the deuce of spades, which is the biggest trump card in the deck. Then all sort of things started kind of going off in my brain. And I was just thinking, wow, am I just being too suspicious? Am I going to falsely accuse somebody for doing something when I'm when it could just be an accident that that was a deuce of spades and you know maybe it's just nothing? So I started questioning, having these questions go through my head. And a friend of mine was also telling me that he was playing this extremely like high stakes big deuce game with this particular guy. So I called him up and I asked him a bunch of questions about what he noticed. And I basically told him, you know, just being a friend, it might be nothing, but let me talk to the host and let me ask him to check something out first. But in the meantime, do not play any more big duty game with this guy outside of the the poker game, especially if he brings his own deck. So the next day, I asked the host to look for marks in the back of the deck. The host did look for marks at first, but he didn't find anything. Then a week later... He called me and he said he found something using a black light and he saw all the markings in the deck. Basically, if it's a nine, you'll see a nine in the back of the deck. If it's a 10, you'll see a 10 in the back of the deck. Um, And you can clearly see it with a black light. And that's another uh, thing that (laughs) that you can do as a player is like, just bring a black light, shine at the card when they're not noticing. Or even if they do notice, just say, yeah, I'm just, just being cautious. I've heard these things happen all the time. And these things happen all the time in home games that you might or might not be aware of. Once you found out about the black light, what was your next step? So I didn't do anything per se as a player. The next step for the host was he organized a sting game and 
basically told these players specifically that we're having a special game and come come ready to play. So when these guys showed up, the host asked them to empty their pockets. At first, they were reluctant, of course, but eventually they complied and they emptied their pockets. And the host found the mark deck and the special content lenses in their pocket. And he confronted them. And these guys basically admitted to the cheating. And they said, that's our game. I'm sorry, but we got caught, but that's our game. And that was that. And then they just laughed. Yeah. Subsequently, I don't know what happened, but they basically left and, you know, we kind of kicked them out of the of the group. Well, yeah. Good eye there for the deuce. Now, what strikes me, because, you know, we also have a lot of cheaters in chess, is that the, the problem with cheaters, which is actually good for us because we actually get to catch them eventually, is that they get really brazen. Because, like, to me, when, you know, you did the thing where you put your finger in the deuce... Like, I, you would think that they would notice and be on high alert and be like, you know, we made a lot of money from this game. Let's just chill for a month. Right. You know, and, you know, not come as much. And when we come, play fair. Then maybe like, you know, a few months later, we could try doing something sneaky again. But they're they're too brazen for that, right? They just they just go forward straight ahead. It's No, I think that goes to like the mentality of a current artist, you know? Like when they've been getting away with it for months and they haven't been caught, they just had this sense builds into them that that maybe they'll never get caught that these people are too stupid to notice what's really going on and honestly i talked to several people afterward and what i realized was these guys especially the the head of the team have been pulling off these same scams for about 10 years now and they've been getting away with it and that they would get found out and um, they would leave town and then they'll come back a year later or two years later when the dust dies off. I'm glad you caught them and that you were able to reconvene with your real poker friends and your tight-knit group. It does definitely, I think, tell us some lessons to the rest of us of like what to watch out for. The other thing I think about cheaters is that they are so focused on their cheating that sometimes they lose their powers of observation. So they might not have noticed you were as suspicious as you were, which I think is obviously really good because you managed to, to catch them after that. Of course, there is Maria Konnikova who wrote that that book about con artists. Did you ever read that? Is yes, I'm actually halfway into it. Um, she she's an amazing writer. I love her book, um, and that's an incredible book. So I'm actually halfway into it. I really love it. Yeah, I mean, I think that that writing a book about con artists and a book about Sherlock Holmes, like it kind of it. He had like the the right recipe for kind of getting into poker and like learning it quickly because it is it's like about you know not only like the skills you learn from like studying Sherlock or chess but also about like catching people who are trying to deceive you both via the rules of the game um in you know bluffing and also those who are not playing by the rules which is I think something we always have to think about that we have these rules and some people think that the rules are are more than what they are that also include cheating they're like yeah, well, these are our rules. Um, and that to me, that's not really a game anymore. It's something you also see echoed in other fields. Um, before you became a professional poker player, you were in finance on Wall Street, right? So how did that prepare you for your career in poker? Being in finance, I was maybe one of the two women on the trading floor. So that's kind of a big parallel between poker and especially high stakes poker and finance because there's not many women five years ago, or even 10 years ago. Now there's been so many incredible, like amazing high stakes female poker players. That was one of the similarities. And of course, in, in, in finance, it's... Um, it's all about math. It's all about data analyzing. And in poker, that comes in very handy as well. And you say there's a lot of great high stakes female poker players now in some of the games that you play or games you've heard of. Um, can you mention anyone whose career you look up to or that inspired you as you were starting to play higher and higher? When I was playing in Macau, I was like the only high stakes female player there. So it was kind of an uncharted territory. I guess... What I can think of in the last five years, some of the high-stake female players that I really respect and that's been kind of grinding through the games are my good friend Farah Galfan, who's also an incredible, you know, socially aware philanthropist and an incredible friend. Kim Lin, you can see her playing 25-50, 50-100 in Vegas during the summers. 
think Lift Bury did really well as well, especially in the tournament scene. So those are some of the players that I really look up to. I don't play as much anymore, so it's like seeing them doing so well just makes me so happy that there's so many great female players. That's also inspiring other female players to to kind of get to that level. One of the things I have heard about high stakes cash games is that not only you know to succeed, obviously you have to be good at poker, but you also have to have the right personality for it. And I I wonder about Macau. I think there are so many players who go there, maybe try to get into some games are not always successful at it. How are you able to break into those games? It makes it a little bit easier because I speak three different Chinese dialects. And plus, I'm the only female there that plays these games. I was young. I was a bit naive. I get invited to a lot of private games. You know, as a woman, you get a lot of attention on the poker table. Uh, most people kind of underestimate your skills and they just look at you in the skin that you're in which is a young woman. So it honestly didn't really take much for me to kind of get invited to these games. I'm oftentimes, it's about me turning down some of the games because I feel uncomfortable and I don't want to owe anyone any favors, you know, or I don't want to play too big. It wasn't so much about getting invited or breaking into these games. It was more about kind of managing my own, trying to balance the game and, um, like in my personal health and life. That makes sense because I think that people who have the personality to play high stakes poker, it comes so naturally to them. It can be a little bit difficult to kind of like describe it, you know? It's uh, it's just uh, your natural personality to be like comfortable and friendly. That, uh, that makes a lot of sense and to fit in. You, at some point in your poker career in the last few years, you ended up going to a week long human rights conference in Oslo. Can you tell me about how you ended up going to that? And how that changed your trajectory? Yes. Obviously, you know, I worked on Wall Street for 10 years. So I met some big Wall Street people that was very much into philanthropy. One of them was a huge supporter of the Human Rights Conference and the Human Rights Foundation. And at the same time, I had met some human rights activists uh, around that time. And so one thing leads to another, I got invited to go to this week-long human rights conference in Oslo. And it's a eight-hour-long per day conference. And you are just sitting in a room with people that are incredibly conscious and aware of what's going on in our world outside of the U.S., you know, what other countries are dealing with in terms of tyranny and human rights abuse issues. And you're in a room with a bunch of activists as well. And all they talk about is human rights issues in their own native areas. And you just can't help but be inspired by these people. Once your eyes are open to see what is going on and some of the atrocity that's happening in a world, you can't close your eye anymore. It's almost like, you know, someone throw you into a, a pool and say, you either swim or die. And, you know, you're thrown into the pool of this human rights issues that the activists are, are telling. You just can't help but like open your eyes and really see things for what it is and see how many stuff, how much suffering that's going on in other parts of the world that we're not even talking about. You know, we have a lot of social justice issues in this country and we're heavily talking about those issues, but we're not talking about like human rights violations in other countries and other parts of the world. And there's just so much things going on outside of our poker community and our country that we are not aware of. So I was just really, really inspired by, by the whole experience. Was there a specific person or panel that you observed that was a real light bulb moment that stood out um, in particular a few years later? Honestly, every single moment was like a moment. It, was, it felt like you were just being hit by all these little moments and it just made up for it. The entire experience, like that whole one week, which is a life-changing experience. And after that, you ended up starting the organization Poker for Good, and you started running charity tournaments. Um, when did you come up with that idea? Was it at the conference or, you know, shortly thereafter? How did you come up with this? I mean, I had some ideas before that, um, but I never really like, you know, did anything about it. Like, like most poker players, like 
we want to do something, we want to try to help and give back, but we kind of always kind of push those things back because we want to focus on poker and we live and breathe in poker to try to be the best in the games that we were in. So I had those ideas, but I never executed them. And then the conference kind of inspired me. And then after the conference, I thought a lot about it. I also went to Burning Man and, you know, I thought a lot about that. I um, experimented with certain things and it just, everything just kind of leads me to this point where I was like, I, I, sh- I need to do something and I should, I should engage myself and I should um, start with what I know the best, which is poker. And knowing what I know about poker and the people, the community of people within poker, we all know that there's good days and bad days in poker. You know, there's good days where we had an incredible night and we had won a lot. or we had an incredible result in tournaments. We're so happy about it. And then there's bad days where, you know, we get bust out when we're third (laughs) on the final table. And, um, you know, we wish we, we did better. Or we had a terrible cash game session, so we lost a bunch, and we wish that those monies would have gone to people that's suffering from human rights abuse that could really change their entire life or the entire trajectories of the um, effort that the act- activist was working on. So we all had these moments in poker, and we all see how like glamorous poker life could be sometimes. You know how we spend so much money on very expensive restaurants and clothing and bags and stuff like that. And, you know, sometimes we're doing it to project our success. Sometimes we're doing it to project a void within us that we might not even realize that we're doing it subconsciously. So there's so much like wastage of energy and, and funds within the poker community that we can really redirect to do something really good and to give back to the community. And that's when I kind of came up with the idea of, all right, I know poker. I know some of the poker people. I know how this community wants to do something really good and give back, but don't have a direction or platform to do it. So let me combine what I know there and then combine what I know from my 10 years in Wall Street with my business skills and, and my business degree and maybe launch something that I can give back, you know, not just to nonprofits that I'm raising the fund for, but to really just give back to myself on, you know, something that I can, that I can do as a, as a human being. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a fantastic way to look at it. You know, sometimes people say that like charitable giving is, is selfish if the person feels good about it. And I I always thought that was such a bizarre distinction because if you're the type of person who feels good being charitable, then you are charitable. Like, I'm not sure why people aren't allowed to feel happy about doing good things. I think that's like a positive, not a negative. Obviously having poker tournaments is a lot of fun. So that kind of furthers the idea of making giving and philanthropy fun. I read that one of the first nonprofits that you worked with was related to children with uh, brain tumors and you ended up teaching survivors how to play poker. That sounds like a really formative experience. Can you tell me more about that? Yes. So that was also a one week long camping experience with uh, this group of, of survivors. And these are survivors, you know, from I think as young as eight years old or 10 years old to um, 20 years old. And they've all gone through like life and death experience. And, you know, a lot of these kids didn't even know if they're going to make it next week or next month. But I mean, they don't even know if they're going to make it like the next day sometimes. Um, And they had, you know, multiple surgeries to try to cure this disease. So we had these, we have multiple camps for the survivors every year. Uh, One of them is in Montana and it's a week long camp. And since I know poker, uh, the organizer of the uh, camp asked me to teach the kids how to play poker. And I was like, oh, okay, sure. (laughs) At first I was like, oh, okay, um, this could be fun, but I need to think about how to teach them to make sure they get the most out of it and and I don't turn them into degenerate gamblers. So I come up with kind of a teaching course and talk body languages and also talk 
resilience and emotional control, you know, how to survive basically when you're in a game, even when you are facing extreme amounts of atrocity. And we have 50 kids that showed up to, to, this, uh, to this camp and they all came to the game. I was so nervous, honestly, because I hate public speaking and I hate like being in a room full of people, never mind like 50 people, adults and kids. So I was, I was really, really nervous. They showed up and they basically got super, super into it. They want to learn even more about it after the teaching session. So we spent like another like three, four days teaching them on the game itself. And then at the end of the week, I organize a charity poker tournament. They didn't have to buy in anything. They just have to show up, obviously. I brought a few prizes, iPads and drones and stuff like that. So they got really excited about that. Some of them are super, super shy at the beginning of the week. And they're really quiet. They don't say much. They kept to themselves. They don't really engage the other kids. The camp itself, it's like, it's a way for these kids to kind of share their experience and kind of bond over, you know, the life and death that they've, that they've been through because the kids in their class, in their normal class, or even their siblings or their parents can really relate to what they're going through. So the camp is like an experience where they can kind of be in a place where they feel home and where they are sharing and being in a place where they feel like everyone else is, is the same. Yeah, I mean, that sounds really beautiful because, you know, the thing about diagnoses and doctors and terminal illness that is difficult to grasp as a human as it's this like this this pain of numbers and probability you know how good of a person you are is obviously not correlated with whether it's going to come up heads or tails right whereas like here we have poker which is the opposite this is like the fun of probability the game of probability it's very stark and i can understand why they would really embrace that right because it's like the that opposite side of the coin yes for sure when i told them there was going to be a tournament happening at the end of the week Everyone was super excited. They were looking forward to playing and hanging out and the prizes, of course. And you just see like the energy and the support that they give each other. You know, when you see when one of the players gets knocked out, you know, the other one would just kind of collapse and like the whole room would collapse and just kind of embrace that experience and support each other. You know, they've dealt with a lot worse in their life than to suffer a temporary loss in a, in a poker hand. It was just something so, so beautiful to, to see. I say that if you ever have a chance, you know, and you have a week free or a few days free, you should join us and give yourself this gift of seeing that and, and changing your life. And teaching chess, perhaps. But um, <laughs> I think they would love that. You know, I do want to get to your, your current um, project with your Poker for Good as you're you're working very diligently um, with the Stop API Hate and awareness and advocacy for preventing and stopping violence against Asians and Asian Americans. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what inspired you to make this big push in your nonprofit work? So it's kind of started as an impromptu charity game that I put together. First, I just thought, oh, we'll just get like nine players. We'll all sit in a room and we'll we'll talk about what's going on and have a conversation and just have fun at the same time and raise money for this uh, group called StopAAPIHate.org, which is an organization that keeps track of all the hate incidents that's been happening since the pandemic happens. They've also been doing a lot of awareness work in this space. And as an Asian person, I know in my culture, we often are very quiet. And even when we felt or faced discrimination or racism, we tend to be very quiet and we tend to just kind of not speak up and let it go and not make a fuss about it. Not a whole lot of Asians has been speaking up. And there's two spectrums on the, of the Asian community, the big spectrum of the Asian community too. There's the immigrant Asian community, and then there's the second generation Asian community who's equipped with, you know, higher educations and also just being able to speak English. I'm still the first generation immigrant. I came to this country when I was 13. So when I first came to this country, I didn't even know how to speak English. I still speak with a bit of an accent. My parents still don't really speak that much English. 
And the mentality that they have that we that I'm taught to have is keep your head down, try to fit in, let's not make a fuss, and let your work speak for yourself. You know, same with in poker, it's like don't talk too much and let your work speak for yourself. Let your win rate speak for yourself. So that's the culture that I grew up in. And that's like a very, I think, pretty accurate view of the Asian culture in general. And I spoke to a few friends and um, some friends told me that they've been facing discrimination and hate crimes uh, during the pandemic. One of them even got punched in the face twice when he was in a grocery store uh, for no reason other than these people coming up to him and saying, you don't belong here, you know, come flu and stuff like that. And then punching him in the face and then running away. So you see these things happening and it's happening around me so much that I just felt this frustration of the fact that like, I really need to speak up and I need to do something, especially for the Asians that don't speak out. So I need to kind of make up for for them not speaking out. Most of us know that there's this um, mass shooting in Atlanta where eight people were killed by one shooter and six of them were Asian women. And the shooting took place in three different Asian spas. When the police and the authorities came out, they came out and basically said the shooter had a bad day. And they basically kind of gave him a a reason and an excuse and said that he had a bad day, so this happens. In the meantime, there was nothing said about the victims. The victims were kind of portrayed as sex workers, people that works in the spa that deserve less, and they were immigrants. They might or might not have paperwork to be in this country. So they somehow weren't really portrayed as actual human beings or actual uh, free citizens of this country. So a lot of the credits and, and, and a lot of ex- excuse was made for the perpetrator, but very little, in fact, sets a very negative tone for the victims that, that actually got killed in the shooting. So I was very, very frustrated hearing that and seeing that there's not much that's been done and there's not much support from the authorities to kind of speak out about crimes like this that's happening. And so I put this charity game together and I want to have these conversations with my group of friends. Um, It ends up being, instead of nine people showing up, it ends up being 30 people showing up onto my Zoom and everyone just want to chip in and and talk about it and kind of had this dialogue on what's really going on and and what what happened leading up to this for this to happen. And the more I get into it, the deeper of a rabbit hole I dig for myself. <laughs> and I just started reading books. I start reading books about fundraising. I start reading books about how to, you know, do good works in charities. I start reading books about racism. I start listening to all the podcasts that's out there. I start reaching out to nonprofits organizations and asking them what I could do, you know, to, to volunteer or to, to help out in the cost. So I just started kind of doing all this stuff and getting myself involved. I'm so glad that you're doing it. And I understand that it's like a, a rolling process. So anybody who wants to pledge, you know, 10% of their next winning session to the cause, they can go to your Instagram page and, and find the donate link and, you know, be part of the, the campaign, which is now $17,000 plus and will no doubt be more by the time this episode airs. I hope so. Yes, I really hope so. It didn't really click for me how important this cause is to me until all this awareness in the last last month, because I personally have um, known two people who've been murdered, and they were actually both Asian American women. Of course, uh, the poker player Susie Zhao, um, who you know we all dearly miss. Yeah. Um, and then there was also a neighbor of mine who was who was murdered also by by the exterminator and. I don't think I really connected that or processed it that, you know, these were were hate crimes and that it's uh, it's something that we need to like specifically target and think about and discuss. Yes. And and we all know hate crimes are very difficult to prove. And there's a huge disparity between what the law define as hate crimes and what's socially and morally acceptable as hate crimes. So that's that's a conversation that we need to have among ourselves. You know, and just 
basic things like the New York City Midtown incident where the 65-year-old Asian woman got attacked and she was kicked in the face and stomped on in her head several times. And then you see two doormen basically closing the door while the attack is happening. And if you watch the entire clip, you will realize that the doormen were watching the attack as it happened and continued to happen for close to a minute and a half before they opened their door. And I think most people are not aware of this, but the attacker actually stopped kicking and stomping on her head because of a bystander across the street yelling at him, which redirected his attention to going across the street. So you can see the attacker pacing back and forth, you know, coming back to the victim and then going, trying to go across the street. And then eventually got so distracted, he went across the street to chase the bystander that was yelling at him. So obviously, had that bystander not do anything, the attacker could have continued to hurt this 65-year-old woman and could have really killed her, especially with the doorman inside the building not doing anything. It's so hurtful and sad, obviously, that we would have two bystanders and two community members that wouldn't help out another person that's being attacked. It sounds absolutely vile, like that they saw it and you know weren't doing anything else and just didn't do anything to stop it. I thought I did read that they were fired though, is that correct? Yes, they were suspended on the same day and then they were fired a week later, mm-hmm. right? There's bystander educations you can take from, actually, actually um, there's an organization called iHollerBack.org and they do an incredible bystander education uh, for uh, anti-Asian xenophobia situations. And, you know, you can educate yourself in terms of like what to do when you see these things happening. If it's on the street, if it's on a poker table, you know, there's ways to do it. Uh, For example, that particular person that was across the street that distracted the attacker, we directed him. So that was one, that's one thing you can do. You can distract the attacker or you can distract the harasser that's been harassing someone by yelling, by saying, stop, don't do this. You know, if it's something really terrible, you can look to people around you, make eye contacts. You can delegate to them and say, hey, can you go get the supervisor or can you call 911 and get some help? You can also document the incidents by taking out your phone. Every one of us has a phone. So you can take out your phone and you can record the incidents. But obviously, don't post it on your own social media. You should record the incidents and give it to the victim after work and let them decide what they want to do with it, whether they want to show it to the police or or keep it for themselves or for whatever reason. But do not post it without their permission, obviously. You can also do a delay tactic, which is checking on the victim after work. You know, you might be with your children, you might be not comfortable enough to kind of intervene directly, but you could check in on them afterward. And the other thing you can do, obviously, is if you feel comfortable, you can intervene directly and try to stop whatever that's going on. And every one of us could take one of these steps to kind of stop the incident from happening. And every one of us should educate ourselves ahead of time so that when this when these things happen, we know exactly what to do. And we all know that being poker players, we're in a casino environment. We're in an environment where there's a lot of Asian people that plays poker. There's a lot of Asian dealers that deals for us. And sometimes you see like players or, or especially uh, dealers that gets berated by the players and you know, we all just kind of like sit back and did not do nothing about it. We just kept our mouth shut. There is really something that you can do. You can just say something and say, hey, stop, that's not right, or call the floor. And those are situations where you can easily stop the attacker or the harasser. Absolutely. And one thing I really take away from this that I think us as games players should understand is that it's really normal for people to freeze or not know what to do in an intense situation that they've never encountered before. But that's why we, you know, in poker, we study for those situations. And so planning, visualizing, thinking about it, talking to people about what you would do. And this organization you mentioned, hollaback.org, like that's how we learn. Especially poker players. I mean, you can just, you know, tune into the uh, training. It's an hour long training. 
you could, and it's, it gives you a lot of um, kind of cultural backgrounds on the Asian community, the AAPI community. Um, so it's actually a pretty good kind of one hour long uh, training that you can learn a lot from. It doesn't really take much for you to kind of like learn this stuff. So I, I urge everyone to kind of take a look at that. And even if they don't kind of tune into the training, at least understand these five steps that you can take. So next time you see something happening, instead of freezing or not knowing what to do, you could employ one of these steps to stop it from getting really bad. It's a video on halavak.org? Yes, it's a one hour long video. Okay, well, I'll put that in the show notes as well so people can um, watch it. I'll definitely check that out myself. I'm just so excited that I got a chance to talk to you, May. I mean, I can't wait till we see each other in person, but this has been fantastic from the hand history and giving us an insight into the specific type of cheat to all your wonderful work that you're doing with uh, pokerforgood.org and Stop API Hate. I'm really excited to win lots of money in my next tournaments. The more, the better. So you can donate and pledge more to the uh, campaign. Thank you for your pledges. Thank you so much, May Sue, with the love, hate hand, jacks, and more importantly, the stopaapihate.org campaign that she's doing with Poker for Good. Um, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show and in the community. Thank you. And please check out my website, pokerforgood.org. And you can also check out the uh, campaign Instagram at Poker for Good or my own personal Instagram, Mayday underscore NYC. Beautiful. Yes, it's a gorgeous website. And I'll include all those links in the notes as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to thepokergrid.com. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. If you want to support my projects, consider a tax-deductible donation to U.S. Chess Women. We are working to even the mind sports playing field by bringing more women and girls into chess. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.